0: Verse 20 of Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, Jesus said, we can't do a thing as small as add one hour to our life. And so how will we come before his word and look into these things without the help of his spirit? Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, our time is short and we are small. And so we come before you, almighty God, who holds power over the earth and all of creation and over every heart in this room. And we pray that you might be merciful and pour out your spirit upon us. And as we look into this glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, may you be our help. And may you open up our hearts to understand the scriptures. May you teach us from your word. And may you fill us with the spirit that we might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and even to love him as our own. We ask This knowing that you are great and mighty and there is nothing too difficult for you and you are able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And so please bless and help us in Christ's name, amen. Death, life, love. There is no scientific explanation for life even as we consider each one of us, I presume, had a good night's sleep last night while we were asleep, we did not die. We were not conscious of our heart beating or our lungs breathing. But somehow, through the wonder of life, our body knew what to do. And our brain kept firing with its signals. And all those unconscious workings sustained our life during our sleep. How is it that two cells can come together to form an entirely new and unique life, a tiny baby that grows and becomes a a nurse, a cashier, a secretary. Think of the popular theory of origins that some resort to, the theory of evolution, which provides no scientific explanation of how life started. What was it that apparently electrified and animated dead stuff and made it ripple and pulse with life? What made that for the first time? It's an awesome phenomenon, and with all of its mystery, it is at the core of this verse in Galatians 20, because here is the mystery of Paul's life. How did a man who hated Christians become one? Explain that. Lots of people think that people never change, but Paul changed in a radical way and he experienced a life-changing event, so much so that it became a defining feature of his identity. Death, life, and love, these three are at the core of of what it means to be human, part of our shared experience. And there are poems and songs and prayers and books that are, are made, countless works that are inspired by these three themes attempts to grapple with them and understand them. And the Apostle Paul makes this declaration of death, life, and love in the midst of a a theological defense, if you will, defense of his faith, of his doctrine, but even, we could say, a a defense of his very identity. But notice there's no angst or uncertainty in what he says about these three great themes. He speaks in definite... Definite ways they are defining features of his life, things that define everything else about him, they begin here with death, life, and love. And together, these three describe an experience that was so radically transformational that you might wonder if Paul is really Paul anymore. What it means to be human has been totally altered for him because his life has now been coupled with this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this union of Paul and Christ that I want us to explore in this hour. And we'll look at three different aspects of this newfound life that Paul has. What are three aspects of this union with Christ? And first, I point you to this life which stems from death. Life stemming from death. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer... I who live, crucified. How could this possibly be? Is this a real crucifixion, Paul? I mean, here you are literally writing this letter. You're not dead. And with Christ? And the gospel writers tell us that there were others who were crucified. How many others? There were two. There was a robber on each side of Jesus. Did they somehow overlook the fact that there was a third man there with Christ? We have no indication that Paul was a witness to Christ's crucifixion, let alone a participant. And so, But of course, he's not talking about uh, physically being crucified. This is spiritual. It's spiritually true. It's a picture of what has happened to him, his old man, whatever he was before he was a Christian. And he's taken up this image of Christ's crucifixion as if he is united with it in some personal way. Now maybe when you're at the, at the grocery store or the auto shop, you've noticed some people wear crosses as necklaces or maybe in the, the glitzy uh, proud images of, of musicians or rappers where they have these blinged out crosses uh, and, and with gold and diamonds and all these different things. Have you ever stopped to think how peculiar? That is, on one level, to wear a cross as something to beautify you. It's really messed up, on one hand, to have this picture of a brutal means of torture and execution. We would think it absurd to wear, around your neck, an electric chair or a a lethal injection uh, syringe. But here, people adopt this image, and necklaces are very personal And it's strange that anybody would identify so closely with something like that as to wear it around their neck. And yet here we have the Apostle Paul associating so closely, holding so dearly to this image of the cross that he makes crucifixion a defining feature of his identity. And why? Well, there are two things I'd suggest we need to know about this crucifixion, even of Jesus Christ, to understand what it has to do with, with this transformed life. And so the first thing is that this is a real death. This is life stemming from death and that death is real, Christ's crucifixion. It was real suffering. It was a brutal, horrific experience. It was violent physically. You know how it started with the flogging and then crushing down on his head a crown of thorns. There was nailing. There was a spear. And it was also a humiliating death. There was real humiliation. And we know very little about this because people just don't die this way today. If they are executed, it's done in a sterile environment behind closed doors. It's not a public spectacle. And this was very different. Where the Lord Jesus was stripped of his garments, he was paraded through the streets, he was hung on display along a public road, It was real humiliation, real suffering, and beyond anything that we could see with our naked eyes, we know that the Lord Jesus experienced uh, real spiritual agony. It was beyond that pain and shame when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And from the glory that he shared with God the Father from all eternity, that bliss and that harmony within God's trinity, experiencing uh, unmediated love from the Father, uninterrupted love. Now on the cross, God strikes him with a full measure of burning anger and his fierce justice. And the prophet Isaiah tells us that it pleased God to crush him and put him to grief. Now, I've wasted many more summers than I care to admit as a child growing up in high school playing video games. And you know what death looks like in video games? It's temporary. You can start, you can heal, you can do over. That's how final it is. You know what death feels like in video games? It's painless, it's quick, it's nothing. But here is a death that's severe, that's oppressive, that's crushing, it's violent, it's humiliating, it's spiritually agonizing, it was real suffering, a real death. And it was also a necessary death. In Christ, crucifixion was necessary suffering. Now, there's needless suffering. There's the, the suffering and hardship like when our trash can at home, we have an automatic trash can that opens for you when you wave at it and makes it very convenient, but not when the batteries are dead. And the problem is the batteries don't just die they slowly trail off so it opens only part of the way and then you have the inconvenience of needing the hassle of, of opening yourself, then dumping in. And this can go on for days where you neglect to replace the batteries or change the time on your clock and you think, if I just took the 30 seconds or whatever it is to get new batteries, I wouldn't have to go through this. But then we think of necessary suffering, like our men and women that serve our country, Navy SEALs, who endure great mental and physical strain, the toll of intense training, long deployments, harsh environments, violence to their own body, separation from their family, but out of a sense of duty and devotion to their country, they willingly choose that. They choose a life of service freely and gladly. They bear the hardships. They, they even count it a privilege to suffer for the cause of freedom and this suffering of the Lord Jesus was necessary suffering that he chose because of sin it was necessary because of sin do you ever find yourself knowing what to do and not doing it that's sin at a basic level sin is failing to do what is right but not only is there a getting it right component there's a doing it in a right way. And sin is offensive. It's, it's uh, not so much that sin is offensive to people anymore. I mean, most things that, that religious people like us might declare sinful, uh, the world is proud to make their thing and parade it on Main Street, sometimes literally. But people are still offended by sin all the time. they angry that their car was broken into. They're upset that they were lied to and manipulated. They're miffed because they were mistreated and not remembered. And sin is violence and lovelessness toward other people, toward our neighbors. Sin is offensive, but most of all, sin offends God. If we don't do 100% right in God's sight, then our... uh, we're not, we're not just moral failures before God, we are rebels against God, rebelling against him. Sin is rebellion. Rebellion against God's law, against God's standards, but also against his personality, his being, who God is. Sin offends God's goodness. Sin is evil, and this is why Jesus died. This is why his death was necessary. Not because of any sins that he personally committed, but because he took the sins of others upon himself. And the wages of sin is death. And whatever you might think about the minimum wage and what people should be paid, God says the minimum amount that you are due for your sin is death. And so Jesus, never having sinned himself, volunteered to be sin for his people so that they might be saved. And saved from what? Well, saved from wrath. This death was necessary because of wrath. Jesus died because of God's wrath. I think it's impossible. If you honestly and carefully read uh, the Bible, you have to be surprised by God's wrath. And to find from the very first pages of Scripture, God is proclaiming curses over the whole earth. He is threatening judgment. He gives stringent stipulations uh, for what, what his people must do, and there are severe punishments that are promised. In the laws, there's violent imagery God uses of swords and of fire and blood, storms and terror. The God of the Bible is angry. He's angry at sin, and he's also a perfect judge. And so on the one hand, you have God not letting anyone get away with anything. He hates corruption. He, he hates those kind of judges that take bribes and let people get away, Uh, Free if they're guilty, or the kind of judge that condemns an innocent person for their own reasons. And the minimum penalty, again, for death, uh, for sin, excuse me, is death, even eternal death, with eternal suffering for anyone who sins. And it was this divine wrath that was aimed at sin that made Jesus' death necessary. Jesus couldn't just come and preach good morals and set a good example so that we would have something to to, to, uh, to follow after and aim at with our life. If, if we were to have any hope, someone who did everything right must step into our place and sacrifice himself so that we could live. And Jesus absorbed all that holy wrath of God against sin in himself when he was crucified. He said, it is finished he had paid the price for sin and this points us to what happened to Paul when he became a Christian this is what it all has to do with Paul's death as he describes it his death was real and necessary in Christ's death he died Paul had to die because of sin sin if you will is a disease that has so thoroughly infected our whole person that no amount of amputation will remove it. Nothing short of spiritual crucifixion could break its power in the human heart. And God's wrath hovered against Paul because of his sin. And it would strike him down in utter condemnation if Jesus Christ had not retargeted the justice of God to fall upon himself. The cross is where the power of sin was broken for Paul. And united to Christ, there was a radical break with sin in Paul's life. He died to his sinful past. He died to his sinful loves, his sinful ambitions. All that offended God in Paul's life died at the cross. It wasn't a, a, a private progression of views for Paul. After all, he was uh, converted to Christ en route to Damascus on his way to, to arrest Christians And he and and his companions right out there on the road, they saw the bright light from heaven and they heard the voice of God speak. And soon everyone in the community would know that this man who once breathed murderous threats against Christians was now proclaiming the same glad and gracious tidings. And so Paul's death was necessary. It was a real death. And so must your life begin with death. If you want to live, and I mean really live, you must start with death. Now think about the last time that you fed your body. It was probably this morning, having breakfast. But when's the last time that you fed your soul? Maybe you skipped a meal because something was necessary, something came up and you didn't have time, but when is the last time that you skipped nourishing your soul. If you want real spiritual nourishment, if you want real spiritual vitality, even eternal life, then it can only come through dying. Come and be crucified. This is what Jesus taught as Discipleship 101. He said, if anyone desires to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And this didn't mean come and, and buy a necklace with a gold cross on it and wear it every day as an act of devotion. He said, take up your cross. In other words, be crucified. Shed everything offensive to God. Kill all your, judge, all your grudges, your greed, your godlessness. Cut off every lust. Choke out all anger. Turn away from those things that you know you ought not to do. Get away from every place that you ought not to go. Everything that is precious to you, but that God hates, you must put it to death. And so, where does the power come from in all of this? The 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 you that is you must be crucified in a sense. Your sin must be nailed to the cross. And in Colossians 2:14, Paul says, Christ has done it. He has nailed the debt of sin to the cross, he has nailed your sin to the cross. And the power to overcome our sinful selves is exactly what Paul encountered in this death. This radical change didn't come about because he found some worthy and sufficient example uh, to follow and, and apply himself wholeheartedly to following. It doesn't say that he was crucified like Christ, as if he was trying to replicate what happened to him, but it said he was crucified with Christ, Christ's crucifixion, Accomplish this transformation for him and Paul's experience is now bound up in Christ and so Christian conversion involves death that is real and necessary a death to sin and self because this religion is not a, an accessory for life it's not a badge of pride it's a radical transformation and if you would be a Christian this must be true of you it doesn't look the same for everyone. Sometimes it looks like the gathering demoniac who went from a brawling suicidal maniac to sitting clothed and in his right mind. Or it can be as subtle as someone who grew up in this church and realizing only in hindsight that this power has really transformed them. But however it looks, it's necessary. Love of self and love of God cannot exist peacefully. Love of sin Love of righteousness, there's no crossover between the two. And worldly appetites versus seeking the Lord with a whole heart, they're incompatible. We must put to death our appetites for sin. And we die to, not for sin. You know, sometimes um, we know that the Christian must put off sin, we must die to uh, our, our self. But we don't die for our sins. Christ has accomplished it all. When we sin, sometimes we feel like we should suffer. I sinned today, so I need to spend more time in the Word. I need to pray longer. I need to burden myself with some harsh thoughts and sort of stew in my guilt as if we could catch up or make up for what we've done. It's as if we need to die in some way to suffer for our sins. But Christian Christ has already done that, He's already died. You're right, someone must suffer for your sins, but he has satisfied that demand in his death. All of the sins of his people, past, present, and, and five minutes from now. So Christian, if you sin, there is no challenge to take up. There are no self-inflicted stripes to, to, uh, to put on your, bo- your body or your mind that can bring you healing. Only in his cross Can you be healed? So is his cross nothing to you? Will you degrade Christ's cross work by starting a work of your own? Rest in him, confess to him, live in him, for he has satisfied all that is necessary. You die to sin, not for sin. So it was a a real death, a necessary death, and we begin to see this union that Paul has with Christ's crucifixion, in his spiritual crucifixion. Secondly, see life flowing from Christ. The next part of our verse, he says, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So we know that death was not the end of the story for Jesus. Uh, It wasn't for Jesus and it wasn't for Paul. Paul is thrust into a spiritual resurrection of life. And notice three things about this. First, the the newness of that life. There's a quality to it. It's newness. You know that unmistakable smell of a new car. It has that freshness, that excitement, that pride. It's mostly just smelling uh, glues. It's the the off-gassing process of those adhesives that they use. But there was an unmistakable freshness, a newness about Paul's life. And he says, the life which I now live. You see, there's a definite contrast here between what was and what now is. Before, Paul seems to have been extremely hardworking. He was formerly marked by vigorous activity. The only problem was it was against God and against that infant church. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor a violent aggressor, but then he encounters Christ. And when he's converted, this aspect of Paul's character, that hardworking, vigorous Paul, it's not only sanctified, but it is enlarged and it's invigorated. Knowing the fear of the Lord, he says, and the fearful situation of all those who are outside of Christ and in their sins. Paul made it his business to persuade men striving if by any means he might save some. And he, he takes up this new cause. Whether or not people think that he's crazy for what he says, he's now laboring for the sake of God and the sake of human souls. And that's the cause that he puts all of his energy into. And what, what, what production those energies made. God used him to write at least 13 books of the New Testament. He took extensive missionary journeys he planted churches. He trained pastors. Uh, pastors, And his life demonstrated that it's true that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Because many profess to have had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and yet they're not changed. And there's not a radical newness to their life. Paul Washer uses this Illustration that I heard such a long time ago of a logging truck. And he says if he was late to one of his speaking engagements and he used as the excuse, he said, I'm, I'm sorry I'm late, I was changing a tire on the side of the road and a logging truck bore down upon me at 100 miles per hour and it ran me over and I'm sorry I'm late because cause that happened to me. And you'd have to think he's either, uh, uh, he's either a liar or he's a madman. Because you cannot encounter something as big as a logging truck and not be radically changed. And the challenge that he puts to us is, which is bigger, a logging truck or the living God? When you encounter something so great as the Lord Jesus Christ, how can you not be changed? How can life be all about you before Christ and still be all about you After, it's impossible. Old things pass away and new things come. How can you be the motivating force of your life? You get all the credit and be confident about your efforts and abilities and be the same way after you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't be. He must take the place. He must increase and I must decrease. Christ is now Paul's hope his confidence, not his training, not his accolades. He puts all that aside. He calls it refuse because now he knows Christ and he's united to him. And it's just like the psalmist says that all my fountains are in you. <clears throat> there's a new, a new cause and there's a, a new source of life and that's Christ. There's a newness, a new quality to life, and there's a new source, where I get my life. If you want really good coffee, you'll want to know its origin. Where was it grown? That, that can determine all kinds of things, its flavor, its quality, its price, and not just with coffee, but with wine and so many other things. You might find it, it says it's sourced from the finest, you know, Uh, arabica beans from ethiopia what is the source what's the origin that can determine what it's like and the 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 goodness of it and the life of paul had found its source in christ this is a life that flows from christ and he describes it as if he wouldn't be living at all if it wasn't for uh, christ upholding him christ living in him without his constant support he says it is no longer I who live, because his life is now blended with Christ. It's the union of a branch and the vine. Like Jesus says in, in John 15, a branch has no life in itself. It's only when it's joined to the vine that's infused with life and can grow. And likewise, Christ is that wellspring. Paul has an endless stream of living water to drink from. His old source, if you will, has run dry his self will, his determination, his goodness and piety, those wells have run dry. They've been abandoned. And now Christ, he says, lives in me. Here is a divine life living within the, the self proclaimed chief of sinners. There must be this new birth. Even as Jesus said, it's not good enough for you to be born once. You must be born again, born not of flesh, but the spirit. The spirit has blown upon Paul and animates his whole person. It's directing his thoughts, it is guarding his speech, it's constraining his his behavior, and the life and spirit of the Son of God is taking up residence, it has, in a former rebel. Is there anything like this in the religions of the world? Is there anything that compares to the divine being living in his follower his believer Allah does not come and take up residence inside his followers the spirit of Buddha is not going to come and dwell within you to help you reach enlightenment Christ is the source not just of truth but of life for Paul and you think about where people look for satisfaction and fulfillment in this life what does What does this world have to offer for abundant life? What gets people excited, invigorated? You have fortunes, entertainment, travel. You have stadiums of 80,000 people, all kinds of sensuality and celebrity. But truly, these are broken cisterns that can hold no water. The world is passing away along with its lusts. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy she who is self indulgent is dead even while she lives. A self indulgent life is a life of death. Its source is dry. And these things of the world might arouse the flesh, but they do nothing for the spirit. Again, true nourishment, true spiritual life is only found in Christ. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? If anyone is searching for something lasting, full, worthwhile, come to Christ. If you know the bitter aftertaste of consuming whatever the world has to offer, chasing the next high, the next experience, come to Christ. Come to Christ and find life for your soul. This is a Savior who says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so there's a new source to his life, the source of Christ. And there's a new way of life. How is this source of life to be accessed? It is faith. Sometimes companies will require you to jump through all kinds of hoops to take advantage of that lifetime warranty or that years-long warranty that, you, that uh, convince you to buy their product And you wind up not even applying for it because the effort is too great with having to get the barcodes and scan this in and send this in online and wait a certain number of months. And it's a strategy. It's purposeful on the company's parts. But what hoops does Paul have to jump through? Does he have to live in a monastery? Could he find this life by crawling up a mountain? There is no act of exertion that could merit this life. It's obtained by faith. And this is exactly what Jesus preached about the life that he offered. He said, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but he has passed out of death into life. Jesus said, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's a life that's secured through faith. To the naked eye, Paul looked exactly the same. Same nose, same beard, uh, same hands, but there was now a life within a life, a forgiven, righteous life, one that is chosen and precious to God that is only seen by faith. Paul didn't uh, get favor from God from studying more, from praying more. It came by faith. Thomas Watson has the The illustration that it's not gold in a mine that enriches, but gold in the hand. And faith is the hand that receives Christ's golden merits, his golden life. And this is really hard for our culture to grasp because we are doggedly self-sufficient. It's hard, the idea that we'd receive pardon and forgiveness, uh, a new life from God as a gift. That's repulsive to our culture, I'd say. Because we believe that with enough enthusiasm and perseverance, uh, persistence, we can make anything happen. We're too proud not to do it ourselves. But we must give up those ideas. Especially when God says without faith, it is impossible to please him. And God's made it this way. That faith is the only means of obtaining this life. The only way to it. He's made it that way so that he gets the glory the only way of access to this well is walking by faith to trust wholly in the goodness and mercy of God through Christ so that nobody can boast that they did it themselves and so as we consider this life that flows from Christ think about if Paul had struck gold in his day when he was making a tent he just noticed there was this vein of gold that he uncovered and if he had written to the Galatians not about the gospel but Given them a description of where to find this gold, men would still be trying 2,000 years later to track it down and find out if there's anything left. But what Paul found was worth immeasurably more than gold. He found a golden life, he found everlasting life, true, abundant, satisfying life that never ends, a life of hope, of joy, of peace, of divine energy. And if your life is bitter, perhaps life seems to you like a joke. It seems like if it were to end tonight, you wouldn't care. Perhaps you wouldn't be upset. Perhaps you despise your life. Well, Christ said, if you have, if you, excuse me, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, more abundantly. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst ever, ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. My friends, may God give us uh, this life. May he give life to our dead hearts, our dead feelings, our dead thoughts. And maybe all of this theme seems absurd to you, that if you took up Christ and Christianity, all that makes life wonderful for you would come to a screeching halt. That becoming a Christian would only rain on your parade and you'd rather keep the life that you have. But I venture to say that there's not a Christian in this place, in this church, that would give up Christ for anything in the world. Not for money, not for pleasures, not for greater power or influence. There's nothing in the world that compares to life with Christ. And if that's your perspective that you would rather have the world and you're you're holding on to scraps, rotten, stinking scraps of food, crumbs, when Christ has laid out a feast and said, come, you labor and spend for what does not satisfy. Why will you not come? Come to Christ and live. And so we've had life stemming from death, life flowing from Christ, and then finally, life rooted in love, life rooted in love. Paul says, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Whereas our popular culture seems to make a virtue out of self-love, learning to love yourself, Paul was not enamored with anything but his Savior's love. He viewed it at a distance by faith but it gleamed so brilliantly in his eyes, and the glow of it colored every dimension of his understanding. And there was this rich gem of love for Paul that was precious to him. And I'd I'd point you to four facets of this rich gem of love. The first facet is that it's divine love. Calvin writes of this phrase that Christ gave himself. He says, No words can properly express what this means. For who can find language to declare the excellency of the Son of God? Has there ever been a love like Christ's love? His love is a superior quality of love in every way because it's divine love. It's not two-faced love or corrupt love. There's no ulterior motive to ruin it. There's no abuse. There's no waxing or waning with this love. There's no basis for doubting it or distrusting it there's no end to it being patient and kind this love doesn't dig up the past and try to rub it in your face this love is willing to bear all things his is rich love that flows from his divine perfections and then secondly this is volitional love it is volitional love typically We don't think of paying our taxes as an opportunity to express love for our country. It's simply a duty. It's an obligation. In fact, it's something that is coerced under threat of force. If we don't pay our taxes, there'll be a punishment. Now, there is a process in place that if you feel so moved, you can give a gift to the U.S. Treasury Department. They won't refuse it. But we render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But volunteering to host a Thanksgiving dinner and buy all the supplies and spend the time cooking to provide a feast for friends and family, that flows from a heart of love. A father doesn't have to be coerced to give good gifts to his children. He delights in it because he loves his children. A soldier willingly chooses to endure those grueling conditions and training because he loves his country. And Christ's dying act flowed from a heart of love. There was no one forcing or coercing Jesus Christ to be crucified. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own free and sovereign choice. It was volitional. He consented to so many violations of his person and dignity, rights and power and holiness. Because he loved Matthew Henry says, the Lord Jesus did not fall into the hands of his persecutors because he simply could not avoid it, but he threw himself into their hands because his hour was come. This is what he was determined to do. It was to save his people from their sins. And so the love of Christ was was divine, it was volitional, and it was sacrificial. He gave himself up. Now, my my sister is a fan of saying that love is not a feeling, right? And the the spirit of that, I agree with, that if if love was just something um, that was feelings-based, it never did anything loving, then it's cheap, it's empty. And sometimes we describe a serious relationship uh, by saying, well, I'd take a bullet for you. That's how seriously I'm committed to you. It's not just... It's not something that I do for just anyone. I love you and I take a bullet for you. And Jesus said, there's no greater love that you can have for a person than to lay your life down for them. And Paul knew how deep his relationship was with Christ. He knew the size of this love because he knew that Christ had given his life up for him. It was great love that drove Christ to the cross and it was great love that held him there. Great self-denying love, like one who braves a battlefield and risks life and limb to rescue the one that he loves. Just like the Apostle Paul was so enamored with the love of Christ that he referred to himself, do you remember, as the Apostle that Christ loved. And so Paul never gets over this fact that Christ loved him and gave himself up for him. That for his sake he made the ultimate sacrifice. And then Finally, it was personal love. It was personal. It wasn't just any sinner, but Paul that Christ died for. The love of Christ is personal. He says he gave himself up for me. For me. Christ was willing to die not just on behalf of sinners, but for Paul and for John and for Mary and for Lydia and for Timothy. His love is assigned to particular sinners. And in fact, the way Paul states it, you might think that Paul was the only one that Christ died for. That's how sure he is of his love, that his death and his resurrection, they were for Paul. Is there any, anyone in high places who loves you? Is there anyone in the White House? Anyone in sports stadiums? Anyone on YouTube or Instagram who loves you? People in power? People that you might admire the most? They likely have no idea that you even exist. And yet here, almighty God takes thought of a poor, wretched sinner, even Paul. Knowing his hatred for for Christians, knowing his arrogance, his covetousness, his murderous, uh, violent tendencies. Yet his love drove him to the cross for Paul. And Christian, he knows you too. He loves you with an everlasting love. He knows you personally, all of your sins, all of your failures, all of your wrong passions, yet he loved you. And we could say with the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of him? Specks of dust to almighty God, creator of all. And yet God does not despise us. He does not cast us out. The sun shines on the just and the unjust and he makes some rebel specks, the object of his affection, even trophies of his grace. How could we ever be worthy of such love? Do we deserve it? Did Paul? Why should God ever lay his life down for his enemies? But behold what wondrous love this is. It's divine, it's volitional, it's sacrificial, it's personal love. What about you? Do you know this love? Do you know anything Remotely close to this love. Brethren, do you think that it could possibly be the case that if we were more mindful of Christ, we would sin so much? Could we possibly sin so much if we had this love of Christ constantly in view? You know, Paul writes in Romans 6 about uh, the Christian sinning as if the very idea of that is absurd. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How can those who are crucified with Christ, no longer slaves of sin, no longer under law but grace, how can we still sin? Why would we do that? Do you think that if we were to set ourselves to maintaining a habit of constantly remembering Christ's love, we would sin so often? But how often is the love of Christ obscured from view? forgotten about, pushed out of our minds because of those cares and anxieties that circumstances bring, because of lesser loves that we cherish in our hearts. The love of Christ was a constraining force in Paul's life. It made him who he was, and so may it be for us. People look for love in so many wrong places and so many wrongly, wrong ways. There are so many loves that will fail you and let you down But here is a love that will never leave you guilty or full of regret, never betray you or abandon you. It's not a love that's too good to be true. And if any of you would be made new, delivered from slavery to sin, to sinful habits, to sinful affections, there is no other remedy than the love of Christ. See what death he died for you. Feel the weight of sin that he bore for you. If you had a friend who was willing to supply you with everything you need, who would give you the shirt off their back, who is ready to help at a moment's notice, who goes out of their way to bless you and supply you, no matter the cost to themselves, would you not honor that friend? Would you not love that friend? And God is such a friend that he gives abundantly life and breath and all things, even when he's not acknowledged even when he's not thanked, when his gifts are despised, when his person is cursed, and God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christian, how far we once were from this love, how ignorant of it, how unworthy of it. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. Is it nothing to you? Is this love of Christ nothing to you? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, If anyone does not love Christ, if anyone has no love for Christ the Lord, he is to be accursed. The stakes are great. Knowing this love, being rooted in this love, is a matter of life and death. And so we have life stemming from death, life flowing from Christ, life rooted in love, death, life, and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul told the story of who he is, of his identity. It was his explanation for why he did life like he did, It was how he accounted for his very being alive. Every part of him was now irreversibly united to Christ. And so may we know more of this death. May we know more of this being crucified with Christ. There's real and necessary sanctification that we need, much to put off in our speech, in our thoughts, in our deeds, that's displeasing to God. The old self has a lot of practice deceiving us, and leading us astray. But may God help us to put to death what is earthly in us. And may we we know more of this life. May we be marked by new life in Christ. More of this marvelous newness that we might know and remember what it was like before we were saved. And that we might press on to know more of this freshness in the life of Christ. More of this marvelous newness. More of this spiritual vigor and joy that springs from Christ as the source, and more of this life with spiritual sight by faith, by faith that we might grow and mature and progress more and more. How can we fear death with such a source of life? May we not tremble at those who threaten us. May we hold fast to Christ and his life. May we know more of this love. Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that we have to be really strong if we are going to understand and know more of Christ's love. He prays and he appeals to the riches of God's grace and glory, the power of his spirit, so that God may grant strength for us to know Christ's Christ's love. There's such breadth, there's such length, heights and depths to it, it surpasses knowledge, he says. But being mindful of this love, may we overcome sin and temptation. Knowing this love, may our our own love be stirred up with much love to him. May we find that love motivating us uh, in our need as parents, as employees, as ministers, as students, to do all for the glory of Christ and to reach a lost and dying world out of love. And with this love, how can we despair? How can we know loneliness with the love of Christ, one who never leaves us or forsakes us, who gave himself up for us? Even if friend or family should forsake us, even if you should know something of that reproach that you bear at the holidays gathered around the table, conversations you can't have, because of Christ. May his love be a comfort to you. <clears throat> May Christ be our life and my all. Christian, here is all the identity that you need. The world says that you need to find what your life is about. It demands that you find your, discover your truth, true self. You have to find your niche. You have to find your thing. Find where you fit in. What is it? What is the defining feature of your life? Is it your heritage, your skin, your nationality? Is it sexuality, trauma, grievances, candidate for president, conservative values, commitment to free speech, to guns? Where is your identity? There are lots of good causes, good things to support, and good things to pursue. But Paul said... When he came, he wasn't coming with superiority of speech or wisdom. He was witnessing of God. And he said, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here in Galatians 2.20, we find this bite-sized testimony of Paul. That he was defined by, characterized by, transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was nothing more prominent to him, more precious to him, than this life in Christ. He had died with Christ, and now he's living in Christ. Christ was his reason for life. And may we say with Paul that we endeavor to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. So may Christ and him crucified, if, if you will, your thing. May Christ be our culture. May everything else hinge on his frame. May every one of our hobbies, our interests, our preferences, our pursuits, our relationships, may they pivot around this central point that I have been crucified with Christ and the life I now live, I live in Christ. He is my all in all. My friend, what are you living for? What do you have in this world? Do you have toys? Do you have money? Do you have attention, affection from important people? What is that all worth after you die? What is that all worth after everyone leaves, after beauty fades, after money grows wings and flies away? How many testimonies do you need to hear of people of the world, people in rich, powerful places that say, at the end of the day, it's emptiness. This is not fulfilling. It's dry, it doesn't satisfy. Thrills become ills, lovers become haters. And God may soon demand your life. Your life may be required from you this very night and bring you to account. Come away from this world and come to Christ. In his death, find deliverance. In his life, find peace. In his love, find purpose. Come and die. Come and live. Come be loved with an everlasting love in Christ. Is it nothing to you? That he died? Is it nothing to you that he rose that you might have new life? Is it nothing to you that he loved and gave himself up for you? Let's pray. Our God and Father, be gracious to us, minister Christ to us. Put him before us as that dying savior and may we know something of his love. Would you awaken our hearts? Would you inflame them with love for Christ? We pray your mercy upon us and ask for your spirit once again. In Jesus' name, amen.